Hello everybody and welcome back to Blockchain Won't Save the World on tour. Today, we're going to explore the unique history of Malta and its transformation into Blockchain Island. It's a fascinating story about how a tiny island nation with a population of just half a million people became one of the most well-known locations for blockchain businesses and the global community in just two short years. It's a story that mixes politics, law, money, a dash of hype, and some fundamental learnings about the role that physical countries play in the enablement of a global digital economy. This episode has it all, and the ink is not yet dried on Malta's role in shaping the areas of blockchain and virtual financial assets. If you're expecting a story about hype and crypto, think again. Get ready for some serious knowledge bombs and some deep thinking along the way. We start with a brief history of Malta's constant struggle to find its niche in the global economy, narrated by the incredible Max Ganado, the godfather of technology law in Malta, followed by Joshua Elol, chairman of the Malta Digital Innovation Authority, describing the founding of the MDIA. My personal involvement is one step in a succession of experiences which allowed Malta to emerge as a business center in certain specialist areas where it could compete because of its size or because of the quality of its law. The first international project was a shipping registration project, and then it moved on to an offshore experiment, which didn't last long. We then started aiming towards the European Union and therefore started getting rid of the offshore model, which by the time started to create difficulties in the world generally. And we moved to a financial services model, which included banking, insurance, investments, and fiduciary services. And each time we had to catch up with the sophistication of other legal systems in order to provide um, solutions for those business sectors. Malta has been blessed in a way with a very sophisticated legal environment because we are a very rare combination between civil law and common law. We've developed a capacity to understand both systems and the biases of both systems and the attraction of both systems. The common law system has a lot of practical, sophisticated solutions for the financial services world and the business world and tends to be very driven by risk tolerance, and also by practical solutions which are anti-bureaucratic. Civil law, on the other hand, has a, a very sophisticated structure for certainty and clarity. So bringing these two together always provided us with an advantage in whatever we did. Uh, we're also small, and therefore when we dedicated time to produce a product, an offering, then we could bring you know everybody together and convince the government and the government would come on board because they'd see the quality of what is being done and generally would enact the legislation as part of the solution. And, and then law becomes an enabling tool rather than an oppressive tool. Looking over you know, the last 30, 40 years, you find a, a continual introduction of these projects. In 1995, we adopted a summary of the English Companies Act, which was a revamp of all the English company law. Then we introduced specific rules into the civil code relating to derivatives, which, you know, for a little country like Malta would be way out of proportion to its relevance. 
but that enabled derivatives to be used within financial services operations. And then we had a sophisticated law on mortgages in our ship and aircraft legislation. And some of that was starting to merge into the civil code in terms of security structures. You know, things have been happening in order to ensure that Malta remains a place where you find a solution in a robust legal environment when you need. My personal experience also included some projects which involved, for instance, the combination of all the registers in Malta into one central register, a law which was never enacted, but I passed through the whole experience. And this element of registers, which also features in other laws I was involved in, such as, for instance, a law on foundations or the law on particular legal organizations, was the background against which the proposal relating to blockchain was made, at least was brought to my attention. So there were two gentlemen whose names were Steve Tendon and Chris Vassallo, who actually approached me to see whether I would be at all interested in discussing the possibility of some legislation which could be developed to encourage the development of Malta as a digital center in relation to blockchain. Now, blockchain is a particular innovative technology with the smart contracts included. And what was so attractive about that when it was explained to me was the feature of the ledger, which obviously brought in all the knowledge and and experience around registers, the security features that started coming in on the ledger that would be being used, which is an advance on what existed on current ledgers, and the speed that it could disrupt existing structures. That this was a game changer was immediately evident, that Malta could take elements of its legislative history and combine them into something new, which would deal with this phenomenon, was obvious. And it was really a case of understanding what the priorities should be. And within a years of work in, what, 2016-17, We actually came out with a document which Chris and Steve presented to the government in terms of a strategy which could be adopted for for blockchain. In 2017, you had a massive problem emerging of a gap in regulation. And this happened across the world. You know, every country seemed to have a problem because what was happening with this disruptive technology was that it was falling in a gap in the regulatory laws relating to financial services, relating to trading in assets, relating to money. And what came out clearly is that the biggest agendas for us as a small country wanting to offer a solution through law was to address these two issues. Firstly, the need of certainty, legal certainty, and that still is the big agenda in many, many countries. And the second issue upon which legal certainty is very relevant is regulation. And therefore, the priority was to introduce regulation. And the reason for that was that Malta was at a greater level of vulnerability because it is so small. So if it wanted to step into this area at all, the first thing it needed to do was to solve the problem of regulation. So when Malta was looking into legislating blockchain, crypto, it became apparent when technologists and lawyers were around the table discussing how can you regulate this technology that will potentially allow for software to execute with bugs inside of it that might lose millions of euros or dollars of losses. And uh, we came to the conclusion that we need some level of assurance on the technology, not only on the financial operations. So 
the legislator went about writing the laws that included setting up of this new type of authority that would provide higher levels of technology assurances into the crypto space. Through this legislation, the authority was then set up and the authority set out in providing such technology assurances. And we noticed that it's going to be impossible for the authority to get enough resources inside of it so that it itself can look at technology and verify whether it's doing what it should be doing. So we used a model similar to what is used in gaming in Malta, where the authority vets the system auditors, other companies who have the ability to undertake such system audits. So the MBIA really, it uh, vets and scrutinizes system audits and their subject matter experts to make sure that they have the right expertise to look at technology and say it's doing what it should be doing. And then we rely on their opinion. We also undertake scrutiny on all their operation to make sure that it's sound. We undertake normal checks on these operations. So really we're watching the watchers as such. So uh, we have currently have five system auditors and um, the process is that they approach us saying they would like to undertake audits on certain types of technologies. So it's not that they become auditors for all types of technologies. And then we will sit down with them, ask them to bring their various subject matter experts and we will interview them. We will scrutinize them, both from an operational point of view as well as from a technical point of view. So, for example, if they claim to have the ability to audit Solidity smart contracts, we'll make sure that they have the Solidity skills in-house. And we specifically ask to interview each individual subject matter expert, so each person who will be working on such projects. When we outsource, we're not really paying them to do it. Really, anyone who wants to certify their technology through the MDIA will have to approach a system auditor. We currently have a number of engagements. So the way that it works is an operator who has some technology, we call it an innovative technology arrangement. So someone who has this technology arrangement, they approach the authority and say that they would like to certify it. And they approach a system auditor who they say will look at the technology and as an authority, we make sure that that particular system auditor has the skill set to uh, give an opinion of soundness on this particular arrangement. And when we're scrutinizing, let's say, the subject matter experts, we're not only looking at their technology background, at their experience and their expertise, we're also looking at who they are as an individual. So we're undertaking due diligence on them. And nonetheless, yes, we have had subject matter experts who did not pass our due diligence tests. Then as we're undertaking various system audits, at certain points we do find challenges that the system auditors find it very hard to find the subject matter experts who have the right level of expertise in the particular area that they're auditing. So the biggest problem that we're finding is finding the human resources who have the adequate technology background to look at all the different technologies. And this is amplified in the blockchain and DLT space, where often new types of languages are being developed on new types of blockchain. And if that platform comes to be certified, really, they are the only people who have the background in that language because they created it. So in particular cases like that, we'll need to outsource and we'll need to bring in language expertise in computer science and potentially compiler expertise, distributed system expertise. So really, if we don't find someone on the specific technology, then we can always rely on the underlying computer science expertise for the subject matter experts.
So Malta was to become the blockchain island and use legislation and assurance as its differentiators for bringing safety, quality, and legitimacy to the blockchain space. Next up, you'll hear from Dave Police, CEO of ZBX, Jonathan Galea, the president of BitMalta, and more from Max about the early days of the rush to Blockchain Island and how things have changed since. I remember attending the Blockchain Summit, one of the, the larger events, and there was so much hype at the time. All the big players came over. The Winterwoods, the John McAfee's, like lots of different characters. And there was lots of anticipation. The Blockchain Island is going to be Malta's next savior. I think that hype is important. It's like Bitcoin at the end of 2017. And the reason why hype is important is because it attracts the attention. It attracts capital, but also it attracts illegitimate players for the industry. Now we're finding ourselves where we have to see who is actually delivering on those promises. All of those ICOs that collected a heck amount of money, most of them actually did not deliver on their product, but they were still sitting on the Ethereum or whatever the Bitcoin that they had collected. So lots of money was still tied up in those not so great projects. Same thing goes with the exchanges that they said they're going to relocate to Malta. I recall something like 60, 65 exchanges saying, hey, we're going to relocate here. But when they see the amount of work that needs to be done, then obviously the amount of licenses that will be granted is going to be probably something that you're going to be able to count on your fingers. And why do I say that this is a good thing that people are coming back down to earth? Now it's time to actually deliver on product. Which are the exchanges that are coming up with real new solutions? Which are the ones that are going to offer real protection, like the same you defined in the financial world? Are there going to be emerging central depository, like what's happening in finance? Are insurances going to get involved with crypto exchanges? So if an exchange gets hacked, your money doesn't fly away with the wind. So all of these, I think, is very good for the industry. But obviously, it's a time of reckoning. Who wants to be the first mover? But if you're the first mover, usually you're the sucker because you get all the problems because you're finding them for yourself and you're not learning from others. So the time right now, and you know, when we're recording this, end of 2020, is the time where there is more pain than gain if I might try to simplify. But I think this is the time where you want to be in the industry because when you talk to someone, because they probably have a good product. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived. I would say that first and foremost, back in 2018, I remember that it was a very, very hectic period. Um, the reason being that Malta had just announced its intentions to uh, create a regulatory framework which caters for companies in the blockchain and the crypto spaces. And uh, that led to a sudden influx of companies looking to set themselves up in Malta and establish their presence in Malta without necessarily understanding what this regulatory framework would stand for. I mean, uh, there were talks about uh, Malta being, uh, let's say, the best place of a crypto business because it has lax regulations, because it will provide funding for certain projects. There were certain points being thrown about, some of which were true, some of which were not. Because from our end, we were quite busy explaining what Malta actually stands for, the benefits it offers, what it does not offer, and obviously how one would go about in terms of carrying out their business here in Malta. We had, let's say, a lot of companies coming here and trying to avail themselves of the so-called grandfathering period under the Virtual Financial Assets Act. 
which regulates service providers like exchanges, brokers, custodians, and so on and so forth. Companies were required to uh, come in and set up the company by the 1st of November 2018, which was the effective date. And obviously, up until the 31st of October 2018, it was just a mad rush by companies from all over the globe seeking to set themselves up in Malta. So it was a very busy time period. Then, obviously, when the grandfathering period came to an end, there was uh, quite a number of companies which decided that they would no longer continue benefiting from the Maltese framework, and they did not proceed with the actual license application under the remit of the Malta Financial Services Authority. So I think the grandfathering period served as a period of time in order to separate the wheat from the chaff and in that way be able to, let's say, sort out the companies which actually meant and were serious about applying for a license and operate within a regulated environment. Apart from that, we also had uh, certain uh, initiatives in terms of, uh, let's say, more tech-focused companies reaching out to Maltese government and the Maltese authorities and see how they can perhaps set themselves up within the local ecosystem, especially seeing how the Maltese government was seeking to actually implement blockchain technology and also seeing how, again, since the service providers were looking to possibly relocate to Malta, then it also made sense for ancillary service providers, like those providing development services, to also be um, located here in Malta. So we did also see an influx in that regard. Also, before the whole COVID pandemic struck, there was still a whole movement, especially relating to blockchain development, in terms of working remotely from Malta, benefiting, of course, from the 300 days of sunshine at the Vostov, and offer their services remotely to other companies and clients worldwide as well. So to sum it up, not as big or hyped as it was a couple of years ago, but definitely more mature, more serious, and more forward-thinking in terms of the local community. The difficulty with decentralized blockchain arrangements, because that's what we call platforms here in our law, is that they are very, very difficult to handle from a due diligence point of view. There's a very, very high level of anonymity. Money laundering law has difficulties in addressing it. Tax law had questions. So part of the project that was being done at the time was to come in with money laundering guidelines, to come in with tax guidelines and solve the uncertainty in each of these areas. And the outcomes was always more burdens on any applicant, more clarity for taxation, more clarity for due diligence and so on. So the burden of an applicant is enormous. In fact, funnily enough, although the laws were passed in 2018, it is only this week that we are seeing the first approvals starting to be mentioned as ready to be issued. You know, so while originally there might have been hundreds of applications, we're now talking of one or two or three approvals. What happened proves what I am saying in terms of the intent of the original legislation. While a big part of the story was the influx of blockchain companies looking to establish a presence in Malta, there has always been a domestic community focused on the evaluation and advancement of blockchain technology. Jonathan, Joshua, and Beata Young, founder of Women on IT, give us an insight into the makeup of Malta's blockchain and startup community. Uh, just after the ICO hype, Malta announced uh, the blockchain island, and that's really where it's hyped up. And you started to see lawyers and business people and get-rich-quick schemers join the blockchain community and just trying to um, do something in blockchain, whatever it is. And then we started to see conferences popping up and all sorts of people and 
it was quite an exciting time because it, it seemed like, wow, this industry is picking up so fast. This actually might make a huge change overnight in Malta. And then when Malta announced its regulatory frameworks and the financial regulator was going to regulate the crypto space and MDIA was going to provide technology assurances on such arrangements, over time, no licenses were given yet. So this was around over a period of two years. And a number of companies that were in Malta, apparently, they claimed that there were around two to 300 companies in Malta. Uh, to say the truth, I think that works out to the advantage of Malta that all these companies didn't stay overnight. Uh, it would be interesting to see w- where a lot of these companies are now. Because as we know, in the blockchain space or in really in any tech startup space, there's going to be a high amount of companies that don't make it. And for a small island of like Malta, um, that could really be detrimental. And as well, um, we also know that in this space, there will be a lot of scammers. So I think the fact that we actually took slightly long in issuing these licenses worked out to Malta's benefit because it weeded out some of the bad players. And now we're seeing that the financial regulator has issued its first registered white paper. So that's great. And we're expecting very soon that they will also be issuing license for an operator. It's getting there. Um, In regards to the community, I I wouldn't say there's no community. I would say the community that exists now is a community that actually believes in blockchain and understands it. And we're driving a lot of this community through the master's program in blockchain that we have at the University of Malta. One would think that often such a program would be tech-focused only, but we bring together techies, lawyers, and business professionals into the same program to create this ecosystem. And we have close collaboration with the various companies who are based in Malta to make sure that the educational ecosystem that we're creating goes beyond our university walls and extends to industry. The Maltese blockchain community um, has evolved over the years. And uh, I know this for a fact because uh, I was one of the first persons to organize meetups here in Malta back in uh, 2014 and initially for the meetups we used to be roughly around five people in total for the first meetups so it was mostly people who were let's say hearing uh, bits and pieces here and there about uh, blockchain technology bitcoin uh, and so on and they were trying to make sense out of it all so initially i would say the meetups were mostly let's say for educational purposes and uh, discursive purposes as well however as time went by we started seeing a bit more of an influx from uh, lawyers and uh, legally focused professionals in the meetups that we were organizing simply because, again, they were hearing whispers of a potential uh, regulatory framework which would encompass the use of blockchain technology and also services provided in relation to crypto assets. In fact, um, one point that I forgot to mention is that I'm also the co-founder of uh, the first association in Malta dedicated to the advocacy of blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies. The association is called BitMalta, and uh, this was set up in 2017. I do recall that towards the end of 2017, our meetups easily had around 200, 300 people per meetup, so there are actually mini conferences taking place. People from different sectors, not just the legal profession, but also from the tech space, business, insurance, financial services, and so on, were all attending these meetups because, again, there was so much hype and buzz going on about the use of blockchain technology that everyone wanted to learn more about it, and there was actually genuine interest. As time went by and as the hype subsided, 
these conferences matured into full-blown events, the likes of which include the Malta blockchain and the AI summit, and which has seen attendance, sometimes exceeding eight to 9,000 attendees. So again, full-blown, large-scale event. And this has shown, of course, that Malta has uh, matured quite quickly in terms of the blockchain ecosystem, and uh, it has become an international community, one might say. Nowadays, the talks um, and the community mostly consist of still lawyers. We are very hard <laughs> to get rid of, but nowadays there are also other uh, technology-focused people as well participating in discussions, academics, which are vital to the growth of any blockchain community. So again, the University of Malta, in fact, has laid out its own um, master's in DLT course, and we do have quite a few academics joining us in various meetups and events and also conducting research in terms of the use of blockchain technology in order to keep us abreast with all the latest developments. Plus, we are also seeing other professionals, including professionals from the accountancy field as well, who are eager to uh, perhaps engage in discussions relating to standards being set for the um, reporting of for example, gains in cryptocurrencies and so on. Nowadays, the discussions revolve around actually how can we make use of blockchain technology for our business. So all in all, I'm quite happy with the way that the, the blockchain community in Malta has shaped up. What is really the benefit of this country is that it's small and it's much easier to have a meeting. Comparing to Poland, where I come from, or comparing to London, it's much, much easier to get things done. So when it comes to the government and the government's uh, initiative of embracing the blockchain opportunity and the technologies two years ago, where they embraced uh, the initiative of uh, having the Malta blockchain island, then artificial intelligence was on the topic of things to be done in Malta. I think it's, it's really encouraging for companies to establish themselves. Although I would like to see more startup community and more kind of vibrant startup atmosphere that I experienced in other countries like Berlin, for example, within the, the small circle of women in tech, there is some great startup potential. So for example, two years ago, I was working with Young Entrepreneurs Program and I was a mentor of a young team. The lady there formed this uh, startup idea and they succeeded every step of the way. So there is a great potential. Eventually, she landed a job with a um, company. Uh, Cecilia Mzaye is very promising talent and I hope to see her startup uh, going forward. So there is definitely a huge potential, but I think the critical factor is still not to be focused on a small island like uh, Malta. It's great for testing your product, whether it's blockchain, whether it's artificial intelligence, anything you like, because actually to set up a meeting with, for example, for in this case, the startup was focused on education and to set up a meeting with Minister of Education was really not a problem because it turns out that access to politicians, whether, you know, the, the stakeholders is much, much easier than anywhere else in bigger countries. But of course, it's a perfect test bed for your product, but you have to focus on going 
forward rather than a small nation of 470,000 inhabitants. And so what are the real-world use cases for blockchain technology in Malta? With few large-scale industry sectors on the island, it's understandable that the main applications of blockchain technology in Malta have been driven by the government. Jonathan, Sandra Psyla, an expert in technology audit and assurance at Deloitte, and Kenneth Farugia, Chief Business Development Officer from the Bank of Valletta, talk us through some examples and ongoing challenges around the use of blockchain in Malta. We should perhaps look at the successful use cases and applications of blockchain DLT in Malta from two different scenarios. First of all, let's tackle the actual implementation of blockchain technology in real-world use cases. And in this regard, Malta and the Maltese government have already implemented blockchain in various areas. The first area to be actually tapped into was the use of blockchain technology for the recordation of educational certificates. So anytime a student obtains an educational certificate from high school, secondary schools, universities, and so on, these educational certificates start being recorded onto a blockchain so that the issue of lost certificates or traceable certificates will no longer remain a problem. There are other areas which have also been looked into. The Malta Business Registry, effectively Malta's Register of Companies, is looking into using blockchain technology for the recordation of data pertaining to companies. Rental agreements are now also being recorded um, using blockchain technology. And uh, lately, I believe it was only around three or four weeks ago, there was an announcement by the Ministry for Family Affairs that the child adoption process, including documents and so on, will all uh, start being recorded uh, using blockchain technology as well. So again, the Maltese government has shown that it's actually practical in terms of implementing blockchain technology, not just talking about it. And apart from adopting it itself, it has also laid out the framework for adoption and implementation by the private sector as well. Malta is the first jurisdiction to create an authority for the auditing and certification of blockchain-based systems and platforms. This authority is known as the Malta Digital Innovation Authority. And the MDIA has a system whereby systems auditors are licensed by it and systems auditors would be responsible for going through any blockchain-based technology arrangement, which might include a smart contract, a platform, tools and services which utilize blockchain technology. The systems auditors would be called in to audit such blockchain-based technology arrangements, and if they meet the requirements and standards set by the MDIA, then they can proceed to giving the green light on such systems. Plus, the MDIA also allows for applications to be made by companies or individuals running blockchain-based platforms in order for such platforms to be certified by the MDIA as complying with its standards. So again, this is another instance of how the Maltese government has actually um, provided the framework for better implementation and use of blockchain technology as well. From a, a private perspective, as in local Maltese companies, I, unfortunately there was not much improvement as in they are still shying away from the technology. And I believe that if they can understand better the technology, there will be definitely more usage. As things stand, unfortunately, local Maltese entities, I don't think that they are benefiting or have the appetite to start exploring blockchain. 
However, Malta was always used by overseas firms. If we see, for example, like what happened in the gaming industry again, many companies come to Malta because Malta has the right infrastructure, has the right people, has the right tax benefits, and English is also widely spoken. Undoubtedly, being first mover and pioneering a regulatory and legal framework has its challenges. Because clearly, uh, if one looks at the European uh, Union itself, you know, even the European Commission was still just debating and discussing, as were quite a number of other countries, you know, the merits and demerits of putting in place regulation for virtual financial assets. Now, I think there's a greater degree of conviction in the sense that even central banks are discussing the introduction of a digital currency. So, in my view, we're maybe too early coming out with the legal and regulatory framework for virtual financial assets when the European or pan-European regulation was not as yet developed. There remain challenges as with all other new innovations in the market. So the interoperability of blockchain technologies, for example, between jurisdictions, that is one of the key challenges because, you know, when you're conducting transactions using virtual financial assets, they're moving them from one technology in a jurisdiction to another, right? So the interoperability between blockchain technologies and the protocols around that and the regulations around that, which may possibly differ between, uh, maybe not possibly in European uh, Union member states, uh, because normally we're driven by directives, which are homogenous. Albeit the caveat is that even with directives, we have sometimes different interpretations <laughs> by, by EU member states, but between regions, right? So there are different regulatory treatments, even when discussing the same assets or, or the same technologies, but it's a journey. And we're seeing the merits possibly of blockchain and it's the ability to apply blockchain across a wide array of, of economic sectors in the trade finance space. Trade finance, as we all know, is heavily paper-based, significant transactions going through between many interested parties in a particular transaction. And where we've seen a blockchain-based technology, you know, really replacing and driving significant operational efficiency and security to a degree. Um, in the in the, in the sector, and the same goes for the application of technology in the insurance space and with the insurance premia. So there are a lot of projects in process working around the blockchain technology, and the same goes for virtual financial assets. It's very unfortunate that virtual financial assets have been somewhat clouded by money laundering and criminal activity. My reply to that would be the same can be said of traditional currencies, right? <laughs> Where we've seen of late, you know, a number of regulatory fines against, you know, big institutions for AML weaknesses and so far as transactions in traditional currencies. So it's all about, you know, ensuring that the regulations that today are applied to traditional currencies and traditional transactions, you know, are applied in the same way to virtual financial assets in terms of having complete look through to the beneficial owner of that transaction. But undoubtedly, interesting developments. I think we've laid the foundations. Clearly, the regulatory developments around blockchain and particularly around virtual financial assets is gaining traction. So, you know, it's being actively discussed. And I think in the coming, hopefully, uh, we'll see uh, pan-European regulation around virtual financial assets, which maybe will revolutionize the way that we process even payments. You know, we all know that you know, particularly in the banking sector, when processing payments, you know, we have to go through the pains of going from one correspondent bank to the other, 
for a payment to arrive at its ultimate destination. And this is the revolution that blockchain and virtual currencies can bring to this particular space, you know, uh, making the payment process much more efficient than it is today and much more cost effective than it is today. Because clearly the fact that you have different pit stops before a payment arrives to its final destination brings with it significant charging structures. So in 2020, as we start seeing some of the first Maltese blockchain licenses starting to be issued, four years after the original Blockchain Island vision, where does Malta go next? What is needed to achieve the original vision? Or is there a need to change direction based on what's transpired in recent years? Max, Kenneth, Dave and Beata share their views on what should come next. The truth is that the concept originally of a blockchain island was more conceptual rather than physical. And therefore, Malta could provide a solution and could even provide support for the regulation and the structuring and the, the testing. But it didn't necessarily have to happen in Malta. Now, there is a bit of a clash with what is happening on other fronts of taxation, for instance, where substance needs to be proven for a territory to host businesses. So if a business is not hosted physically in a country, then you've got a clash with that principle. And, you know, it starts creating negative perceptions of post boxes and, and lack of regulation and lack of awareness of what is happening. So looking at Blockchain Island as a digital concept as well, you could see that Malta as a small country could embark on an environmentally friendly offering of assisting innovation and also bringing in support structures of, of, of legal types, you know, of, of regulation and of... Uh, of audits and, 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 and mechanisms within, you know, potentially defective structures. But it didn't need to have thousands of companies being set up in Malta to operate it. So with that idea, the expectation of having people opening business in Malta was not high. And therefore, we could succeed on the basis, of a, on the basis of a solution which had the quality of, of the digital industry we are speaking about, which is, which is quite ephemeral, really. It's, it's all on the internet and it's non-physical. Now, that is not an easy concept to deal with. Um, and when you come into law, it's even more difficult because each territory has its own law. And the law of one country can't solve the problem in the law of another country. So, for instance, it was very evident immediately that a license in Malta to operate an exchange would only be valuable if the exchange is operating within Maltese boundaries. If the exchange went over to America or to Japan or to London, then they would need licenses on the ground there. The problem that there was, was that there was no licensing laws in the other countries yet, and there still aren't laws of that type. So the, the solution was, was limited in scope, but it showed a part going forward. In other words, there was going to be a time when the solution Malta had would start being recognized by other countries as a solution even within the legal system. And this is what we're seeing today with the European Union proposals, because as soon as European proposals are actually enacted, then there's going to be a passport for the authorizations in Malta and to other countries. So, you know, that plan has actually uh, come, come to fruition. But it would take time. It was evident that the European Union is moving much, much slower than we were. And so, you know, we have to wait for the time when the doors of the European 
countries in the European Union will open up to a Maltese authorized structure. So the opportunity we have now is that we've been there for two years already. We've seen how it's working. We've seen what it can produce. And we can lock into any regional solution very fast without doing anything else. And other countries, on the other hand, have to not only adopt the proposals being made, though the European Union has proposed to use a regulation, which is interesting because that means it's directly applicable and there's no need of transposition. And therefore, what is done here is immediately going to be relevant and accepted in the other countries. So I think that is the big opportunity. Now, what has happened as a result of a combination of COVID, reputational detriment that has been hitting Malta because of uh, bad governance at government levels uh, and weakness in some regulatory structures, and the fact that this area of activity is still a concern in several countries due to the potential use of Bitcoin and other digital assets in criminal activity, the government has taken a bit of a step back. So there have been no new developments in terms of regulation, and what we are doing is focusing on what we did in 2018. Um, I was involved in a, in a project that moved quite a lot, but is sort of on the back burner at the moment, which was trying to understand the next step of, of global relevance, in a way, by creating a legal entity or giving legal personality to these innovative technology arrangements. And we had reached a very advanced stage. Um, I believe in the next few days, an article should be published in MIT um, Technology Journal about this project, which is basically recognizing legal personality or legal structuring around a blockchain platform. So if you suddenly give it legal personality as an operation, you then solve some fundamental difficulties in in legal systems, such as, for instance, governance issues or liability issues, which at the moment are still very uncertain in, in what we are seeing and as things are developing. So there is this project which is ready to go, so to say, to the next phase and possibly even towards legislation, which could be the next development in Malta, which can then be of, of global relevance because uh, legal personality in one country has traditionally been easily recognized in other countries. So that, that doesn't have the same problem of exportability. In terms of business development, we just have to live up to the promise of quality which we made two years ago, both on the regulatory front and on the technology front. A lot of effort is being done to get over the problems of compliance and the reputational uh, issues. And if more effort were to be done in order to overcome those kind of problems, you know, then the, uh, the opportunity for what was designed, just like many other projects that have been done, will, will emerge more evidently. As they say, charity begins at home, so the deployment of blockchain within national entities is undoubtedly key. And not only for possibly linking it just to the deployment of this technology within governments, but also the deployment of this technology within the wider industry itself. Malta has a national strategy, which is being had a national strategy up till this year, 2020. And, you know, technology can impact markedly, you know, citizens, businesses and governments. 
And I think putting in place the required regulation, the required legislation, the infrastructure and the human capital around that, I think will come a long way to have in place the right foundations to enable all these stakeholders to deploy technology to the benefit of their respective interests, if we're talking about citizens, or to their respective operations, if we're talking about businesses. I think the drive for all products and services at national level to be availed of online is clearly there. Malta ranks very highly in Europe insofar as e-government is concerned, and there is a significant drive by government to go um, digital, to enable digital access. Uh, equally so, I think what's imperative is, is human capital. And, you know, ensuring that we develop and build the right digital skills and competencies, you know, in the marketplace to service the grower needs. Undoubtedly, and I think very topical, the development of this pandemic that as it has evolved and most likely will, will get even worse, clearly e-commerce has become very, very important to enable both local and, and possibly global reach. And I think the learning outcome that this pandemic has induced is that, you know, alongside the traditional physical channels, you know, to conduct business, you know, the development of e-commerce platforms using technology and even blockchain technology for that is up for grabs. And the government is really um, putting funding to support entrepreneurs in this particular space. So, you know, positive outlook undoubtedly in so far as the deployment of technology is concerned. And I can see that in the banking sector, as the banks are really ramping up their investment in technology, you know, digitizing their processes and services, going for paperless um, with digital signatures. As I said, this cannot be done in isolation by, by businesses. Um, there has to be the government support, ensuring that the necessary legal and regulatory infrastructure is in place to recognize um, transactions being done through these non-traditional channels. I'm highly pleased to be experiencing these changes. And I think you know, the future is bright for the deployment of technology at national level. The regulatory process in Malta, I surprised myself how thorough it is. This is basically almost as getting MFIT to license, so like, let's say, opening up a digital bank. So we have to really tick all the boxes, which honestly, it was an eye-opener, because we wouldn't have been aware of so many intricacies when running an exchange. Obviously, we had the technical know-how, how to run an exchange, but running an exchange at a regulated level is something completely different than even I wasn't, wasn't expecting. Now that things are coming real, we have to step up to the plate. We have to get the proper capitalization in place, which is quite onerous. But I think if we need to really elevate the bar, we cannot stay reducing the requirements of what it needs to operate in the industry. So forward two and a half years, I can say that probably by the time this airs, the blockchain island would have moved more with regards to crypto exchanges than people would have thought. And because after two and a half years, people are saying, there is no exchanges regulated in Malta. There is nothing happening. Two and a half years ago, there was the hype. There was the loss. Great. The incentives that Malta offers right now, mm, not so great. Is it great to, to be in Malta to get business? Mm, not so great either. Does it help to be in Malta to get banking relationships? Mm, not really either. The ones we secured ourselves are with foreign banks, and it's not because we, we were located in Malta. So two and a half years down the line, I think that we need to revisit the VFA laws. I think we need to work 
hand in hand to provide incentives for companies and blockchain businesses to relocate to the island because two and a half years in the crypto industry, it's about 10, 15 years in the financial industry. And with anything, you need to revise, you need to refresh your current standing. The blockchain island vision, I think, was correct. A lot of time passed. We need to revise what is in place. We need to see what clients or what businesses really are looking forward to. And if we do not do it, Malta will not have the benefit, in my opinion, to be called the blockchain island, because there is many other jurisdictions that are waking up to the call. So if Malta wants to stay on top, it's time to revise the laws, the regulations, and also provide fresh incentives for the industry. We need a lot of positive thinking because we've seen with innovation, with innovative products, the first thing you're going to hear is no, it can't be done. You know, human brain works in a funny way. We don't like the new way of living. We use patterns and then we make mistakes because we just go, well, to give you an example, we travel by car every day. We don't pay attention to signs and we might have a, uh, you know, an accident just because we didn't pay attention to signs because we were just following a pattern. So try to open your mind to new ideas, new possibilities. And I believe that youngsters or whether it's blockchain, whether it's artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, these people who bring the ideas are critical. The final thing I would say is you need to embrace diversity. And I mean diversity in its totality, diversity of ethnicity, sex, or diversity of color of your skin, of your thinking, because diversity drives innovation. The truly innovative products comes from different mindsets, different worldviews, different experiences coming together in opposite ways. And in this dynamic discussion, you can bring much better products. So... I would say if technology doesn't embrace diversity, we are going to have a bias in and bias out. Malta has a hugely rich and diverse history. And as you can tell from some of the voices in this episode, Malta produces some incredible talent. I asked Jean-Michel Azapardi, CEO of Kralink Cybersecurity, and Sandro, what else makes Malta so special in their opinion? The talent, I would say, is pretty decent. Of course, we're, we're, you know, a very small pool of people at the end of the day. So, you know, there can only be so many um, great people to work with, just, just from, from the sort of sheer mathematical perspective. But there are some really, really smart people here. And I mean, for example, there's a, there's a little company called, called Hotjar, started up by a couple of Maltese guys. They basically created a tool to leverage CRO. So SEO would be the, the art of getting people onto your site and CRO would be customer revenue optimization. So the art of converting visitors into customers. There's a lot of hunger here. You have to understand that we offer free education. We offer free college education. So the daughter or the son of a farmer can, can grow up to become a PhD student in IT. 
And that creates lots and lots of possibilities. So people here are really hungry. Besides that, we're not used to working with very large companies. So Malta's economic landscape is made up by 95% SMEs. So when a big company comes here and starts playing around with metrics for, for the conglomerates of this world, it, it piques a lot of interest. So I, I think the talent pool is there. Prices of said talent pool have been pushed up by the gaming industry. Not necessarily a bad thing. We're still a whole lot cheaper than, than the majority of Europe, definitely the US. One of the things which I'm super proud is that we don't have any natural resources. We don't have coal. We don't have nothing. <laughs> we just have people. And when you consider this and compare it to other countries, Malta has a very good standard of living, full working population. The, the unemployment rate is at an all-time low. And all this is coming from the people. The fact that we were able to transform Malta from a rock, literally a rock, to uh, having all the different technology infrastructure, the state-of-the-art hospitals that we have here, from nothing to be able to, to build all this, it can only show how the Maltese are able to work and build something big from nothing. And so that's it. It's impressive to hear the hidden perspectives around how Malta made its mark on the blockchain world and the extent to which this was driven by political vision and legal talent, as much as it was by cypherpunks and cryptocurrency exchanges. It's clear that today there remains a need to anchor the digital world in the established law of an individual jurisdiction. This is how our laws are made and enforced today. But I have a feeling that may need to change, and the Maltese technology and legal community may play a bigger role in this transformation than many will realize. Thanks again for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. As always, opinions in this episode are mine and those of my guests alone. If you want to find out more, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out some of the other episodes on the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast and check out the YouTube channel also called Blockchain Won't Save the World. Stay safe out there. <laughs> we make some epic honey. <laughs> that's, that's basically it. <laughs>